Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost series, posted October 30th, 2018, titled, Part 11, Planet of the Ape Men. Well, hey there. Uh, we got a few more minutes till you guys get to experience Genesis, so uh, I need something for you guys to do. Hey, Ralph. Yo. The vision of this film, what are you hoping to accomplish? We're trying to show that the Bible is true, but also the science to yes. back it up. If we're going to have a debate about science, can you please just be honest about it? Apologia presents The Science of Genesis, Paradise Lost. Part 11, Planet of the Ape Men. If you're new to the series, click on the eye in the top corner to watch from the beginning. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. Cattle and creeping thing. According to the film, the animals God created during creation week were representatives of a few thousand created kinds, which went on to diversify into the millions of species we see today, which allows for some explanation for the undeniable progression of animals through the fossil record. While the Ark Encounter attraction acknowledges this by using the oldest forms of an animal that creationists will acknowledge, for example, this known horse ancestor, the Mesohippus, to represent the horse kind, the Genesis Paradise Lost movie instead chooses the most modern versions of the animals, like these horses. This is presumably to immediately visually read for their audience, but it undermines the work of creationists who are attempting to be taken seriously in this field. Eric's movie does include this zebra-striped horse, a minimal acknowledgement of the creationist idea that all the genes for all the variations were present from the first. And beast of the earth after his kind. Again, these hopping kangaroos seem to be modern kangaroos where baromenology, the fancy name for the study of created kinds, admits that genetics show that kangaroo and wallabies must be of the same kind, so both would have descended from something like this non-hopping kookaroo. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind. Of course the film had to include dinosaurs, starting with these two sauropods stomping on trees. Very iconic. The next shot, though, are two lumbering dinosaurs I had trouble identifying, even after enlisting help from biologists, with Melanorosaurus, Proceropod, and Sauropodomorph our best guesses. Unfortunately, all of these possibilities are acknowledged ancestors of the sauropods from the previous shot, which would obviously be of the same created kind if such an idea held, so their inclusion here back-to-back -back seems unresearched. This spotted and striped and maned member of the cat kind is another demonstration of Eric's idea how genetic diversity should be represented on screen. And even though scientists in the very next section of the film are going to acknowledge that modern apes are variations of more ancient apes, the 3D artist depicted a modern ape for this transition scene. It seems the film was more concerned with familiarity than science that even the creationists in the film acknowledge. Evolutionists believe that I'm not sure who these evolutionists are, 
but it's better than atheist or secularist or some other terms they sometimes use, since the majority of people on Earth who accept the reality of evolution are, in fact, self-proclaimed Christians. We don't have gravityists or protonists. Scientists are convinced would be a better phrase than evolutionists believe. Approximately five million years ago, humans and today's apes shared a common ancestor back here, fork in the road. Uh, that creature is often referred to as an ape-like creature. They don't like to call it an ape because they're going to argue that this creature evolved into apes, and apes evolving into apes is not impressive. I have to disagree. I'm fully awed and impressed by the diversity of apes that came from those early apes. The gorillas, orangutans, chimps, humans, and more. You see, all of those things are still apes. Uh, I'm prepared to accept that ape-like creatures produced apes. Uh, I have a little trouble with the idea that ape-like creatures became humans, and of course that's the whole realm of, uh, of the ape-men. So David acknowledges change in populations over time, but has trouble with too many changes. This is not unlike accepting that a human can walk for a mile, but denying that a human could walk across a state, for some reason. Unfortunately, the film doesn't take time to let us know how many changes are too many, or what the mechanism is that prevents too many changes. As for ape-men, humans are multicellular, lack cell walls, ingest and digest food, and as such, humans are animals. Is that okay, David? Humans have a backbone, and as such are vertebrates. Is that okay, David? Humans have three middle ear bones, a lower jaw, body hair, a thoracic diaphragm, and a four-chambered heart, and as such, are mammals. Is that okay, David? Humans have hands and feet, opposable thumbs, flexible shoulders and hips, a clavicle, and the capacity of standing on hind legs, and as such, are primates. Is this still okay, David? Humans have a hairless face, protrusive lips, flat nails, lack a tail, have a shortened spine relative to body length, broad hips, and a wide chest, and as such, are apes. Modern humans are apes. Ultimately, the phrase ape man makes no more or less sense than mammal man or vertebrate man. You see, what the Bible says, what Genesis says, is that on the sixth day of the world, God made two humans, made a whole bunch of monkeys. He never made any monkey humans, but that's what they're always looking for in the fossils. What they look for in the fossils are fossils. Do you suppose that paleontologists are tossing aside ancient bones because they don't meet expectations? Perhaps from an angel or a snake that can talk? And one by one, all of the different so-called missing link fossils have been reclassified as either over to the human side or over to the monkey side. In a discussion about subtle nuances in biological study, he's using the word monkey as if it's interchangeable with ape. Monkeys have tails, where apes do not. Monkeys have skeletal structures more like dogs, cats, and other four-footed animals, and so on. They're an entirely different taxonomical line. As we've talked about before, all of the hominids are apes. Perhaps this seems picky of me to point out in most contexts, but this film is attempting to present biological evidence for a point of view. There's some basic terminology that goes along with non-superficial discussion. Using monkey here is either ignorance or an attempt to further confuse the issue and create a straw man. Let's do a quick tour of the six most prominent ape-to-human extinct transitional species currently known, so that we can see which ones have been reclassified and when. We'll use the principle of charity to assume that Charles means the genus Homo when he says human side, and the genus Australopithecus when he says monkey side. 
Note that modern chimps, gorillas, and orangutans are in an entirely different genus from all of these. Artipithecus ramidus, discovered in 1992, classified in 1994, and still has the same classification. Australopithecus afarensis, discovered in 1974, classified in 1978, and still has the same classification. Australopithecus africanus, discovered in 1924, classified in 1925, and still has the same classification. Homo habilis, discovered in 1959, classified in 1964, and still has the same classification. Though in fairness, the discovery of new specimens in 1986 did spark some debate about whether it should be in the genus Homo or Australopithecus, but after all said and done, it still has the same classification. Homo erectus, discovered in 1891, classified in 1894 as Pithecanthropus erectus, but the change to Homo erectus was merely a renaming of Pithecanthropus to Homo in the 1930s, not an actual classification change. In the last 120 years, new specimen finds have had hotly contested classification debates, but always considering species within the Homo genus, never considering Australopithecan grouping. Homo heidelbergensis, discovered in 1907, classified in 1908, and still has the same classification. Nothing has been reclassified, let alone one by one. Lucy. Lucy of the Australopithecus afarensis, discovered by Donald Johansson in 1973. Johansson himself said, Lucy has really been dethroned. If we've learned one thing from this movie, it may be that we should check the context any time Charles quotes someone. Now I found this snippet from Donald Johansson in this National Geographic article from practically pre-internet March 1996. The article is specifically about the importance of the Australopithecus afarensis finds, so the quote is particularly curious. And here we find it, on page 20 of a 20-page spread. And from what throne has the specific specimen dub Lucy been dethroned? Here's the paragraph. Lucy was dethroned as the oldest specimen, because another team found a human ancestor older than Lucy. Scientists are finding even older, even more comprehensive, even more numerous discoveries that affirm human evolution than that original Lucy find. More evidence, not less evidence. Meet Lucy. The nasal bones do not protrude. Do you notice any slope at all to the face? Of course. You have the zygomatic arch to the slope, clearly ape-like. What about the forehead? Is it flat or curved? Absolutely flat. When we look from the side, the bone comes way out on this flat forehead, and it's very difficult to see whether there are orbits or eye sockets viewed from the side. Finally, cranial capacity. Lucy has a small brain by ape standards, never mind human. These are true things. These are features of the Australopithecus afarensis skulls. These are the key ways that the species is more like other apes than modern humans. The elongated skull with small brain case, sloped face and jaw, long arms and hands with curved fingers. We could equally highlight the ways Australopithecus afarensis are more like humans. Spine connection under the skull, shape of the pelvis, angled thigh bones, and arched feet. By focusing entirely on the skull, the film is deliberately leaving out all the reasons that scientists claim that Lucy is a transitional form. If a position is to be taken seriously, it needs to account for all of the data, not just the parts of the data that are convenient. Lucy had a brain one-third the size of ours. There's no special reason that an increased brain size would have had to have occurred early in the process. Divergence in other physicality likely predated and accommodated the eventual increase in brain size. 
nothing in evolution would require these changes to be simultaneous. At full growth, a full-grown woman, only 65 pounds, three and a half feet tall, this was a chimp. It doesn't follow that because she was short that she was therefore a chimp. Obviously, there are shorter and taller specimens in any species. It's the morphology that tells the tale. And the, the drawings and these skeletal diagrams of her standing upright, uh, this is probably would have been very unnatural and painful, knowing now what we know about the toe bones being curved more than a modern chimp. In 2011, a paper documenting a complete fourth metatarsal discovered in Hadar, Ethiopia, showed that Australopithecus afarensis had the same transverse arch and longitudinal arch as humans, supporting the hypothesis that this species was a committed terrestrial biped. The only newer paper on the subject is this one from 2016, which documented fossilized Australopithecus afarensis tracks and affirmed very human-like, fully bipedal biology and walking pattern. With a divergent big toe, is what they're calling it now, as they've discovered more of the fossils, that means a thumb on the foot. There are no peer-reviewed papers that support this claim from Charles. The closest is this one from Nature in 2012, which talks about an African fossil find with an opposable great toe, but the article specifically calls out that this is not from Lucy's Australopithecus afarensis species. If I expand the search to include non-reviewed creationist literature, the curved toe claim is traced back to this 1987 article by Duane Gish. He cites no source at all for his assertion that Australopithecus afarensis had curved toes. Even if this were the best knowledge way back in 1987, the 2011 findings are obviously newer, the complete opposite of Charles' claim about what we know now. It seems incredibly clear that Lucy was just a type of chimpanzee. Whatever else we could say about Lucy, she is an ape. We could similarly say, whatever else we could say about humans, they are apes, or mammals, or invertebrates. We meet all of these definitions. What you cannot say, and what David carefully did not say, is that Lucy is a chimp. Like the line given to the non-scientist narrator to say, David is playing a little fast and loose with similar sounding terminology to remain scientifically accurate while still seeming to affirm the film's conclusions in the hope that the audience won't notice. Uh, let's look at another presumed ancestor of man or a pre-homo sapiens. It's Neanderthal man. Once again, Dr. Menton fondles a recreation of an ancient skull in order to point out the similarities between the skulls of two species so that he might conflate them as the same species despite the fact that the reasons to think they are different are in lines of evidence outside of the skull. For Neanderthals, this even includes DNA evidence, where the genome differences from humans are clearly defined. This exercise is not different than superficially pointing out that if you look at a car and a truck from the front, that they both have a windshield and headlights and tires, and thereby proclaim that cars and trucks are exactly the same thing without looking at any other angle. The film took this skull comparison one step further, from the realm of physical specimens to digital ones. The skulls were admittedly scaled to the animator's choice and passed into one another to highlight the similarity of Lucy to Chimp and Neanderthal to Man. When I speak to people who have seen this movie, this particular scene seems to have resonated most memorably with them. But even a layperson can see some differences as these skulls pass through, differences beyond mere sizing. An untrained eye can't tell the difference between a bear skull, a dog skull, and a cat skull. Why would we rely on our untrained eye to spot the important differences between these hominid skulls as the computer graphics use quickly smash them into obscurity? By focusing on skulls, the film ignores all the reasons scientists have for classifying these species as they do. Perhaps you will be more interested in these reasons than the film is and investigate for yourself. The hypoglossal nerve is the same size in Neanderthals as in modern people today. Monkeys have just a little thin thread-like nerve. 
Uh, they have the hardware, they just don't have the software drivers to actually talk. If apes and humans were created as entirely distinct kinds by a creator god, why would he have given apes, chimps, and monkeys the same physical mechanisms for speech if he didn't want them to speak? Why would God want to trick us with every appearance of common ancestry with apes by including common parts that aren't even used? Why did Charles think that this would be a good detail to include? I don't know if you've ever heard a monkey play a flute, but it really doesn't work. How about a gorilla playing a recorder? Can you blow it louder? Or a monkey playing guitar? <laughs> what are we talking about again? Today, the scientific designation, the classification for Neanderthal man is Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. And that third word is actually the designation of the variety of humans that it is. The classification Homo sapiens neanderthalensis was never widely accepted and exists only in a handful of papers from the late 1980s and early 1990s and is in no peer-reviewed sources at all after the first sequencing of Neanderthal DNA in 1997. That sealed the deal that Neanderthals were their own species. Even in the most generous interpretation, it seems Charles is 20 years out of date. Everyone's been told that there are dozens and dozens of these solid, missing link fossils, transitional forms. Let's talk a little bit about transitional forms and what one might look like. Let's skip the emotion and baggage of the biology we're used to and imagine a world where the dominant life form are blue squares. When these shapes reproduce, the child shape is never exactly the same as the parent shape. There are also red trapezoids on their world, but they are not as numerous. As the blue squares examine their world, the oldest remains they find are red trapezoids with no blue squares. But they do find bodies that are 90% red and 50 degree angle base, bodies that are 70% red and a 60 degree angle base, bodies that are 30% red and a 75 degree angle base, bodies that are 10% red and an 85 degree angle base. But they have yet to find a body that is precisely 50% red with a 67.5 degree angle base. Therefore, all the bodies are slightly more square, slightly more trapezoid, slightly more red, or slightly more blue. Have these shapes ever found transitional forms between red trapezoids and blue squares, or have they not? What do you think counts as a transitional form? Oh, so-and-so man. So-and-so man? Really? I'm going to call this argument by dismissive language. Maybe he should just say fossil schmossels or evolution schmevolution. Java man and Piltdown man and Cro-Magnon man, Neanderthal man, essentially all of Homo erectus would be just human beings. But morphology, and even gene sequencing, tells us that these creatures were not modern humans. They are distinct from human, despite being more similar to humans than other creatures. Would you like to dismiss a cheetah as just a lion, or a buffalo as just a cow? A biologist would not, nor would the cheetah or the buffalo when choosing a mate. Don't just believe urban myths of the proofs of evolution like junk DNA. I'm not going to go into detail here, but junk DNA was an unfortunate term given to non-coding DNA. DNA that does not encode protein sequences. The existence of non-coding sequences has been pointed to by some as evidence of a lack of design. But we are still in the infancy of DNA research and some are suggesting that these regions play other roles like regulation, so it's not necessarily a great anti-design argument. It can be a short-sighted position in science to declare that something can't happen, like the gentlemen in the movie who assert that mutations can't add up. Like missing link fossils. I think we've covered that. The secular world teaches that you evolved from some ape-like ancestor. The majority of the Christian world teaches this as well. That there was no Adam and Eve. Oh, and since there's no Adam and Eve, well, then there was no fall into sin, which means there's no need for a savior. While this may or may not be true, 
it is merely an argument from consequence. The consequences of something being true has no impact on whether it is, in fact, true. A lot of times, things with bad consequences are true. So see, the secular anthropology not only does it attack the authority of the Bible, it attacks the very gospel itself. Again, millions of Christians around the world would disagree with you on this, Bodhi. They accept the reality of evolution and also call themselves Christians. I mean, I'm kind of with you. I think the lack of an actual Adam and Eve is a bit of a problem for the Bible in general, but we're just here to talk about the science. At least I am. Next on the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost, Part 12, Veggiesaurus. Tap the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss it. If you'd like to support the work of Pologia, please consider becoming a patron at the link in the description. Thanks for watching.